Good morning, UBC family. As Phil said, most of you, or some of you at least know me as uh, your family deacon that reaches out to you on a, a monthly basis or so. Others as your kids, Awana small group leader. My wife, Johanna, here on the front row, and I have been at UBC for the last uh, three years since the Air Force moved us here in the summer of 2018. You know, I'm a uh, flight test engineer by profession and an aerospace engineer by training, and I bring this up because my entire professional life has been about examining evidence. And after spending the last three decades in the Air Force, you know, testing various weapon systems, it's probably no surprise, and I'm, I'm a bit of a tech geek, I'm big into math and science, but I also like a good sci-fi adventure. I'm more of a Trekker than a Star Wars kind of fan, but if you love Luke, I'm there with you too. <laughs> But those of you who know me best know that one of the things that I'm really passionate about is this subject of biblical creation. And I think by the end of uh, the hour, you will understand why, why it's such a personal thing to me. So, but I am excited to have the opportunity to kick off this year's Asking for Friends series with the topic, Can a Person Believe in Evolution and Still Be a Christian? Spoiler alert, the short answer is yes but it creates some fundamental issues, some fundamental conflicts with the very foundation of our faith, as we'll talk about today. And I'd like to take you through a personal journey to show how I've came to this conclusion in my life. And let me say right up front, if we have any first-time visitors here, this is not going to be your typical Sunday at UBC. So please do come back next week and hear Pastor Jason present the next series, or the next sermon in our Asking for Friends series. But to kick off this, shall we say, unconventional sermon, on an unconventional topic in an unconventional manner, I thought it would be fun to do something that at least I personally have never done on a Sunday prior to today, and that is time travel. Yep, that's it. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a little time traveling. So imagine, if you will, that this whole sanctuary is a big time machine, and I'm standing at the control system here. So fasten your safety belts, and let's take an adventure. Our first stop is 1984. There I was in high school, sitting in English class, being given another boring novel to read. You've all been there. You know what it's like. The English teacher decided that, well, since it was 1984, we should read the book, 1984, by George Orwell. For those not familiar with it, it's a sci-fi novel about a dystopian future and an out-of-control government. If you've ever heard the phrase, Big Brother is watching you, well, that's kind of the catchphrase of the whole book. But that's not the bit that I want to talk about today. The bit I want to talk about today is what Orwell called doublethink, which he defined as the power of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously and believing both of them. I didn't realize it at the time, but in 1984, and for several years after that, I was actually a certified doublethinker. To explain my doublethink, let's go back to time a little bit further, this time to 1977. My family had just moved to Kentucky, and I was starting a new school year at a new school, Lacey Elementary. I was in the third grade, and I was a pretty good reader. My favorite books were the ones on astronomy, and the Lacey Library had a bunch of them. Neil Armstrong was my hero. It was the Apollo era, after all. And like Neil, I wanted to be an astronaut someday. I wanted to walk on the moon. I couldn't do it as a third grader, but I could read about it. I could read about the Big Bang and all the planets and how they were formed and how old the universe was. It was all exciting stuff for a third grader. On Sunday morning, I'd go to church with my mom and my grandparents. Daddy Rufus, that's what I called my grandfather. He hated it when I told him I wanted to be an astronaut. And I really wanted to be an astronaut. That whole space program is a hoax, he'd say. The moon is a light, the Bible says so, so there's no way a man walked on it. Okay. My grandparents were definitely big Bible readers, and they liked to read Bible stories to me, and I liked to listen. 
In fact, one of my most prized possessions is this book, Beautiful Bible Stories, that Mama Ruby, my grandmother, and my mom read to me from. I believed the stories that I heard from the Beautiful Bible Stories, but I also believe the books that I read in the Lacey Library about the Big Bang Theory. Maybe God even caused the Big Bang. So let's get back in the time machine now and zip forward to the spring of 1980. I've just turned 12. It's a Sunday morning, and I'm walking the aisle during one of the altar calls at New Ebenezer Baptist Church where I grew up. I don't remember much about the sermon that day, but I do remember thinking, this is what good boys are supposed to do, right? So I did it. A month or two later, I was baptized, mission accomplished. Now back to those science books. Next, we fast forward to 1987, to my sophomore year at the University of Kentucky. Go Wildcats. Any Wildcats in the room? I went on the front row. <laughs> I still had that crazy dream of someday being an astronaut. And my math and science acumen was a good fit for a degree in mechanical engineering. That's the year, by the way, where I had the chance encounter with the lovely ginger on the front row named Johanna uh, in the lobby of my dorm. We started hanging out. Then we were dating. Before we knew it, we were engaged. Johanna hadn't grown up in a church, but I convinced her that we should start attending one together because that's what good couples do. Am I right? Now let's take another short leap forward to 1990. Johanna and I had gotten married the year prior. We're still living in Lexington and we're regularly attending Parkway Baptist Church with her aunt and uncle. When we told the pastor there that we wanted to join the church, me, I was golden. I had a promise of a letter from another Baptist church. I'd been baptized by immersion. I was all set. Johanna, not so much. Turns out you actually have to be a Christian to join a Christian church. And the pastor wanted to ensure Johanna understood exactly what that meant to be a Christian. And Johanna, she wanted me by her side for this conversation with the pastor. So there we sat in his office as he walked her down Romans Road through passages I was all too familiar with. But somehow, this time it was different. That's where the reality of what Christ did for me really sank in. That's where I realized that I wasn't the good boy that I saw myself as. That's where I realized it didn't matter how many sermons I listened to or how much I read my Bible or how good my grades were in school. I realized that my so-called righteous acts were worthless in God's eyes. I was just as guilty as all those other people I like to look down my nose at. I deserved death for breaking God's laws. And Christ's blood wasn't just built for those other people. It was built for my sins. He died so that I might live. That is the point in my life that I consider my salvation moment. That is the point in my life where Christianity stopped being something I did and started being who I was. For those not familiar with the Romans Road, no, it's not a cobblestone path in Italy, but rather five passages from the book of Romans used to share the gospel message. It goes something like this. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And finally, Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So these five passages, they basically tell us none of us deserve salvation, not a single one of us, that all of us deserve death for breaking God's laws, that Christ suffered and died in our place, and that if we acknowledge him as our personal resurrected Lord, 
We will be saved from the very punishment we deserve. And we will be at peace with God. Amen. Since that day in 1990, I've read and reread these verses. And I've read others that related to salvation. And you know what I discovered? None of them actually say anything about a young earth and a literal six-day creation. So to our original question, can a person believe in evolution and still be a Christian? Absolutely. In fact, on that day in 1990, I was one of those people. By the way, those verses on salvation also don't talk about things like the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the virgin birth, and we could go on. But other parts of the Bible certainly do, right? And the same is true for creation. And let's look at some of the verses about creation. And before we do, just try to imagine what existed before creation. Utter nothingness. I can't even wrap my mind around what that must have been like. Utter nothingness. Not even empty space. So, with that in mind, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just like that. Time, space, matter, energy. All came into existence from nothing. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Hebrews eleven three. 3, by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Again, something from nothing. John 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Obviously talking about Christ there. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and created. Now, the Bible has a lot more to say on it, but I think you get the idea that yeah, our God did a lot at creation. Obviously, verses like this lead to, uh, naturally lead to discussion about the age of the earth. And there are strong opinions on this matter, even within uh, the kingdom of Christ. But as for me personally, I stand with scripture on the matter. And, and I believe that the most straightforward reading of scripture indicates that the world is thousands, not billions of years old. Before you start flipping through your Bible through Genesis, no, you won't find a verse that says, and the Lord God said, behold, the world is 6,000 years old. It's not quite that direct. But it is there nonetheless. And you know, I had grown up in a church. I'd went to Sunday school for the better part of dec uh, two decades. And no one had ever told me this, or at least I didn't hear it. Uh, I had no idea this was the case until 1992. So that's our next step, 1992. I was a second lieutenant assigned at Norton Air Force Base, California, working on the Titan IV rocket motor program. Yes, in 1992, I was actually a rocket scientist. So Johanna and I were attending a Bible study that was watching a video series by Ken Ham uh, on the subject of Genesis. I had no idea who Ken Ham was at the time. This was a long time ago, right? Uh, when he said the world is about 6,000 years old, my first thought was, that's crazy. It reminded me of when Daddy Rufus said the moon landing was a hoax. But in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians, I decided to put Mr. Ham to the test and see what scripture actually said on the subject. Guess what I discovered? It's actually there in black and white. You have to do a little math, mainly over two short chapters, Genesis 5 and Genesis chapter 11, and those genealogies that we all tend to speed read through when we get to them. 
Turns out these two genealogies are a little bit different than the ones you see elsewhere in the Bible. It's almost like God in his divine wisdom knew that in 1992, I'd be struggling with this issue and he wanted me to have peace and understanding without the how and the when he made the universe. So flip over to Genesis 5 with me, please. Starting in verse 3. When Abraham had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. There's a lot of information packed in that. It's not your, your, your traditional A begat B begat C begat D kind of genealogy. There's a lot of information packed in those verses. But the piece that we're looking for here is Adam's age when Seth was born, 130 years. And if you look at the rest of Genesis 5, it repeats the same format from Seth to Noah. Chapter uh, 11 continues the sequence after the flood from Noah to Abraham. And by simply adding up the ages of the father at their respective sons, I discovered that Abraham was born about 2,000 years after creation. If you want to see my math, I actually have a handout on the floor here. You're welcome to come get after the service. The interesting thing about Abraham, though, is both biblical and secular historians agree that, one, he was definitely a real person, and two, that he was born somewhere between 2,000 and 2,200 B.C. So quick math in public. Approximately 2,000 years from creation to Abraham, another 2,000 from Abraham to Christ, another 2,000 from Christ today. So roughly 6,000 years. That's how we get an approximate age of uh, thousands, not billions. And again, if you want to see the details of my math, uh, come see me afterwards. Some of you may be hearing this for the first time today in your lives. You may be doing the same mental gymnastics that I was doing back in 1992. That can't be right. Are those literal years? Is Genesis intended to be history or poetry? Did we somehow skip a few generations in those genealogies? Yes, 92 was the year that I first discovered the depth of my own doublethink. I had just realized that I was holding two contradictory beliefs in my mind simultaneously and believing both of them. On one hand, I believed the Bible in its original form was the absolute inerrant Word of God, no question about it. On the other hand, I knew, I just knew the world was billions of years old. I had known that since the third grade. So I told myself, surely there must be a way of fitting those billions of years into the Bible. So as a man of science, I decided to do my own research. I put aside a few sci-fi novels and started reading books by Christian scientists on things like genetics and carbon dating and paleontology and all sorts of topics. I also decided to take a look at how theologians had handled this. Surely they had the answer. And it turns out that actually before about 1800, there, was, there wasn't really a question. For most of history, Genesis from the beginning to the end was accepted as history. You know, even Christ and the apostles treated it as literal history. Jesus even refers to Noah by name in the Gospels. But since around 1850, theologians have proposed three general approaches to, quote, rectify the Bible timelines with what science has supposedly proven. So let's talk about each of those. The first is theistic evolution. That's the basic idea that traditional evolutionary theory, molecules to man, evolution, nails it. Except for one point. You see, traditional evolutionary theory is built on this concept called naturalism. And that's the idea that only natural, as opposed to supernatural, spiritual laws and forces operate in the world. It's also the belief that nothing exists beyond the natural world. Think about that last bit for a minute and the implications that that has on your faith. Nothing exists beyond the natural world. 
So in other words, traditional evolutionary theory excludes God from the origin story by its very definition. They don't find God because they're not looking for him. Evolution is naturalistic. Therefore, by definition, it is atheistic. So how is theistic evolution different? John West, no relation, described it as an effort to reconcile Darwin's theory of undirected evolution with a belief in God in general and Christian theology in particular. You see, theistic evolution says God is there, kind of off to the side, you know, nudging the process along here and there where he needs it. But pretty much evolution has happened. He's just kind of keeping the flow going. So theistic evolution is an attempt to align Christian theism with evolutionary atheism. When you think about it, that's practically the definition of doublethink that I shared before. Plus the notion of God being a kind of a disinterested bystander, that didn't sound like the God of the Bible that I was reading about. There's something else about theistic evolution that we need to talk about too. It's not just antithetical to the six-day literal creation. It rejects the first 11 chapters of Genesis in their entirety. In the evolutionary worldview, theistic or otherwise, Genesis 1 through 11 are fables. They're myths. They're beautiful bedtime stories to read to our kids just like Grimm's fairy tales. Why is that? Because evolutionists believe that the rock layers we see in the Grand Canyon are the result of slow, uniform buildup of thin layers of sediment over eons of time. It's a concept they call uniformitarianism. So that the world we see around us under this concept is the result of continuous, slow, uniform processes. A worldwide flood like the one described in Genesis would definitely not be continuous and uniform. It would totally devastate those uh, uniform ge geologic layers and is therefore excluded from their picture of uh, the origin story. They're okay with a local flood, but definitely not with a global one. But think about the faith implications when we toss aside the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Some of the things we have happen there. The creation of a perfect world filled with perfect life. The special creation of man uh, in the image of God. The biblical establishment of marriage and gender and sexuality. Maybe there's a reason why we're struggling with those issues as a society now as we've thrown away those books of the Bible. The original sin and the curse of all creation because of it. The promised redemption through the woman's offspring. The original shedding of blood to cover Adam and Eve with animal skin. The first murder and the widespread corruption of the world that happened after that. The destruction of the world uh, to deal with that uh, widespread corruption through the global flood. The Tower of Babel and the confusion of language there. And finally, the diaspora of mankind from Babel to various parts of the globe. The importance of each of these uh, merits its own sermon that we just don't have time to, uh, to go over today. But that's what we throw away when we throw away those first 11 chapters. So let's talk about the second model, the day-age theory. The idea here is the days of creation that we read about in Genesis 1 aren't literal 24-hour days, but rather large epochs of time. Believers in this model often point to 2 Peter 3.8, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The bottom line question here is, did God really mean a literal 24-hour day each time he used the word day in Genesis 1? So according to the Creation Today uh, website, the Hebrew word yom, which we translate as day, occurs 2,282 times outside Genesis 1. Most of the time it's used, it means a literal day, but sometimes it doesn't. For instance, in Genesis 35.3, when Jacob describes God as the one who answers me in the day of my distress, 
Jacob is referring to kind of a general time frame, not necessarily a day. So context definitely matters. So let's talk about context. Outside Genesis 1, yam, that word for day again, is used 359 times with a number, like for 40 days and 40 nights or on the first day of the month. In each case, Hebrew scholars agree that the context demands a literal 24-hour day. Outside Genesis 1, yam is used 19 times together with the word morning and or evening, like they fasted that day until evening. In all 19 cases, biblical scholars agree a 24-hour day is intended. Outside Genesis 1, yam is used 53 times together with the word night, like Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Guess what? Hebrew scholars agree each of these occurrences refers to a 24-hour day. Finally, outside Genesis, the word morning and evening are used together without the word yom 38 times, like the raven brought Elijah bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Scholars agree that all 38 occurrences refer to a 24-hour day. So here's the point. In every case in scripture outside Genesis chapter 1, where yom is used with a number or evening or morning, Hebrew scholars agree, it should be interpreted as a, as a literal 24-hour day. So given that, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering <clears throat> excuse me, over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Did you catch that last verse? And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Evening, morning, number day. That trend continues for the rest of the chapter, almost as if God wanted it to be crystal clear that he was talking about a regular 24-hour day. Again, anywhere else in the Bible, any one of those would be sufficient to say a literal 24-hour day. And here we have all of them. It's like overkill, practically. We don't assume that Jonah was in the, the belly of the fish for three million years, after all. We assume three literal days. So why do we question it in Genesis 1? There's something else in this passage too. Did you catch what God did there in verse five? I'll read it again. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. God just defined for us what he meant by the word day. God called the light day. Why would God define a literal day here and then use it to mean eons of time the next 10 times he uses it in Genesis 1? That just didn't pass the logic test for me. So my conclusion was that God clearly intended for us to read Genesis 1 as factual history with literal 24-hour days. I do recognize that this is a delicate topic and that many God-fearing Christians don't share this belief. There are a lot of Christians that are in the day age camp, and I still love you if you're one of them. But I remain convinced that to read long ages into Genesis 1 and still claim to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture is intellectual dishonesty. That brings us to theory number three, the gap theory. To its credit, this model does believe in six literal days of creation. However, it wedges billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Here's the problem. There's no biblical basis for doing so, not in those two verses nor elsewhere in the Bible. Although this model accepts the days of creation as six literal days, it still assumes the existence of sin and death in God's very good world before Adam sinned. In this model, the Garden of Eden is built upon the remains of creatures that had lived and suffered and bled and died 
before day one and before Eve's encounter with the serpent. UBC family, that's a real problem for our faith. Consider what Paul had to say on the matter in Romans 5.12. Sin came in the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Paul is saying here that Genesis 3 is actual, factual history, that Adam's act of defiance in the garden is the origin of death. If the gap theory is true, then all sorts of creatures lived and died before Adam's sin. If the gap theory is true, then either Paul wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote Romans, or the Holy Spirit misinformed Paul. Either alternative has huge faith implications. If we can't trust what Paul wrote in Romans, then how can we trust what he wrote elsewhere in the New Testament? You know, actually, all three models are problematic in this respect. All three disconnect sin and death. Our very faith is built upon the tenet of sin being the cause of death and death being the penalty of sin. If that's not the case, if death and sin are inextricably linked, then why did Christ have to die on the cross? And if sin doesn't lead to death, then what exactly is Christ saving us from? Do you see the assault on the very foundation of our faith that happens in an evolutionary worldview? And this is ultimately about two diametrically opposed worldviews, two conflicting belief systems to believe both. It's doublethink. By the way, evolution is a belief system. It's a religion just like Christianity, and it definitely has its share of religious zealots. And as I dug into this topic back there in 1992, one thing became abundantly clear to me. If I wanted to have a proper understanding of origins, I needed to start with the Bible. I needed to start with God's infallible word, not with my high school textbooks. And let's be clear about another thing. This is not a clash between science and the Bible. It's often framed that way, but it's not, that's not the issue. Webster defines science as knowledge or a system of knowledge, especially as attained and tested through the scientific method. So science is knowledge. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. So Paul is saying that God is the ultimate author of every word of the Bible. He might not have been the one holding the pen, but he still uh, is the author. But God is omnipotent. He is all-knowing. How can anything he wrote be opposed to knowledge? That's nonsense. He's the very source of knowledge. Now, it's not a clash between Bible, the Bible and science. It's God's word versus man's word. It's man trying to be God. It's man telling God that we know best. It's man telling God that he didn't create the world the way he said he did in Genesis. It's man calling God a liar. In biblical times, we had a word for it. It's blasphemy. Who are we to tell God that he didn't really create the world the way he said he did in Genesis? You know, as God told Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And as for the bit about testing and the application of the scientific method in the definition of science, there's an important distinction to be made between observational science, that's the kind of stuff we do in a lab that is observable and testable and repeatable, and historical science, the kind of science that tries to explain the past. Historical science is not testable. You know, the, it, the scientific method just does not work on historical science. You can't prove it that way. Nevertheless, we've been told for generations that evolution is proven. It's factual. It's been tested using the scientific method. Evolutionary scientists know best. Put your faith in them. There's that faith aspect of evolution rearing its ugly head again. 
But let's look at some of the so-called proofs that we've uh, heard about. And uh, as was mentioned at the beginning of this, Kevin Hatzel and I offer a, a class at this very time block across the street every Sunday that you're welcome to bring your questions to. We'd love to chat with you about it. Uh, obviously, we don't have a, an, the time here to go over all the evidence we present there, but here's just a few samples. We've been told that carbon dating and other radiometric methods prove the world is billions of years old. All they really prove is the chemical composition of the rock that's being analyzed. The derived dates are all based upon several assumptions, all of which are known to be problematic. For instance, rock samples from five modern lava flows all were radiometrically dated between 270,000 and 3.5 million years old. Translation, rocks that we know to be less than 75 years old because people watched them being formed dated, dated, three and a half million years old. When confronted on the matter, the evolutionary scientists at Geochron Labs that did the testing, by the way, one of the foremost labs in the nation for doing this sort of thing, they acknowledged that their dating methods don't work on rocks less than 200,000 years old. In other words, we can't reliably date rocks of known age using these techniques, but we can definitely trust them to date rocks of unknown age, right? We've been told that dinosaurs prove millions of years by the very scientists who won't use carbon dating on dinosaur bones because those methods give dates in thousands of years rather than millions of years. By the way, I'm not saying that carbon dating is accurate. I'm just saying there are about a dozen different radiometric dating techniques that are available for scientists to use. And choose the one that gives them the date in the range they expect. So they don't date dinosaur bones with a technique they know is not going to give them millions of years. But these same uh, scientists, you know, they, are, they keep finding soft tissue inside dinosaur bones that are supposedly millions of years old, that they have no explanation for. It must be a miracle. But the discovery makes perfect sense in a young Earth model where dinosaurs were created on day six, just like Adam and Eve, about 6,000 years ago, and they were originally herbivores, just like all the other animals, and they were probably killed off by the ice age that followed the flood. If the thought of dinosaurs roaming the earth is a bit foreign to you, check out the description of Behemoth in Job 40 and Leviathan in Job 41. Sounds very dinosaur-like to me. We've been told that mutations and natural selections are the key to evolution, but neither of these processes have ever actually been shown to add information to the genetic database. And for molecules to man evolution to work, something needs to add a lot of information into the genetic database. But mutations and natural selections, they both work in the wrong direction. They result in the loss of genetic information, not the gain of it. And despite what you may have heard, that's also true for antibiotic resistance. Antibiotic resistance is the result of a loss of genetic information in the bacteria. We've been told that those rock layers you see at the Grand Canyon, they're proof of millions of years. Look at all those layers stacked on top of each other. Again, the, the, as I said earlier, the geologic rock layers and the fossil record that they contain look just like what we'd expect to find in the aftermath of a worldwide flood. You know, like the one described in Genesis, the one that evolutionary scientists discount as myth. And if you want a glimpse at the geological destruction and sedimentary reformation and accumulation that can happen in the flood, Check out the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruptions where, a where geologists got to witness firsthand the accumulation of several feet of sediment in hours that are now layers of rocks. So there's a big stretch there that we know was not created by a, million, a layer upon layer 
We got to witness it firsthand at Mount St. Helens. Now imagine that. That's one volcano. Imagine that on a much broader scale. Imagine volcanoes going all off, off all over the world. Imagine, you know, the, the torrents that the flood created. That's how we end up with billions of dead things buried in rock layers, bleed down by water all over the earth. Not through slow and gradual. But what about those transitional forms in the fossil record that Time magazine just loves to write about? Surely that's irrefutable proof. You know, actually, Darwin himself said you know, that the lack of in-between types was the most obvious and serious objection to evolution, but he was confident that time would fix the problem. You know, today, evolutionists will acknowledge themselves that they have even fewer examples of transition than they did in Darwin's time. Why? Because all those so-called ape-man that we read about in school have been discounted in one way or the other. Some were even proven to be outright frauds. Last year, a senior research scientist at the American Museum of Natural History, definitely an evolutionist, you know, she summed up the evolutionary narrative for human origins like this. It's just a big mess. There's no consensus whatsoever. That's not exactly what I was taught in school. Just a big mess. The one so-called fact that all evolutionary scientists rally around is the eons of time. Why? It's like the pixie dust that they rely on to make the impossible happen. You don't believe me? Here's what evolutionist and uh, Nobel laureate George Wald had to say about the matter, specifically about evolution. Given enough time, it will almost certainly happen at least once. Time is, in fact, the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible probable, and the probable virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Again, his words, not mine. But as I said earlier, evolution is a religion, as you can see here. Time is its God. This is not, by the way, a matter of which side of the bait has the most evidence. It's not evidence for creation versus evidence for uh, uh, evolution. It's the same evidence. It's about the different worldviews, though, that we look at that evidence through and the differing assumptions we bring uh, to the discussion, the differing assumptions inherent in those worldviews. And we could spend the rest of the day talking about the flawed assumptions in the evolutionary worldview, a topic I love to discuss. Uh, but if you want to learn more, as I said, join us across the street uh, for this time frame any Sunday morning, and Kevin Hatzel and I will love to chat with you on it. And yes, this has been a paid infomercial for the class's ministry. <laughs> so let's wrap up with three points of application today. First, if you've never trusted in Christ, Genesis really does explain why, we, why you must. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We all deserve death. No matter how good you are, you can never work hard enough to pay your sin debt off on your own. I tried. It doesn't work. Only through the atoning blood of Christ... Can anyone be saved? So if you haven't taken that step, please make it today. By the way, one other note about those genealogies back in Genesis 5, with one exception, they all end with three words, and he died. Hebrews 9.27 tells us we all have an appointment with death, and after that comes the judgment. Don't delay making what would ultimately be the most important decision of your life. Second application, if you believe in Christ but also in evolution, Ask yourself why. What is your basis for your belief? 
Is it because it was burned into your synapses as a third grader too? Is it because you're trusting man's word over God's word? Take the time and do your own homework on the matter. And then consider how important Genesis is to our faith. Virtually every core belief in Christianity has its roots in Genesis. Consider the fact that Jesus and the apostle described creation and the flood as historical events and Adam and Eve as real people. Dig into the problems associated with radiometric dating and the improbability of molecules to man evolution and discover for yourself what is truly science fact and what is science fiction. Consider the faith implications of billions of years of death and disease and suffering in the world before Adam's sin and before God's punishment. Consider the inconsistency of the evolutionary worldview where man is the pinnacle of evolution, the ruler of the universe, the master of his own destiny, compared to the scriptural worldview where God is creator and ruler and master and redeemer. And yes, judge. Go visit the Creation Museum. It's an hour's drive from here outside Cincinnati and the Ark Encounter outside Lexington. They're pretty amazing displays. And as you do all of this, you just might discover that evolution is as much science fiction as time travel. And as you do all this, also ask yourself these crucial questions, these three questions. If sin did not cause death, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? If sin and death aren't inextricably linked, what is Jesus saving me from anyway? And finally, by what authority do I get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible to believe as factual and what parts to treat as fable? Final application, for those of you that are on board with the the notion of a young earth and a literal six-day creation, make a point to tell someone about it this week. You know, point to some resources that teach historical science from a biblical perspective. Help your kids understand this crucial aspect of our faith. Help them see the beauty and majesty and creativity of creation and the integrity of our Lord. He did what he said he did, so we can trust him to do what he says he will do. Yes, if he'd have wanted to, he could have taken 15 billion years. You know, God is outside time. He could have done it that way had he chose to do so. Or he could have done it in a nanosecond. But he told us that he did it in six literal days and he rested on the seventh. Not because he was tired, but because he wanted to establish a pattern of work and rest and worship that we're here honoring today. He did that for all mankind to follow. So on Friday afternoon, when your coworkers are excited about the weekend, you can remind them that our seven-day week is actually a reflection of the creation week. And when they say, well, how do you know? You can say, God's word says so, and that's sufficient for me. Thank you for your time and attention this morning. Let me close this in prayer. Lord God, we come before you today thankful for the body of believers that you've assembled here at UBC. We pray that today's message is received as it is, as it is intended with love. We pray that it's one that shows your love and your compassion and creativity and trustworthiness. I pray that understanding that your word is infallible from cover to cover will bring transformational peace to everyone here today that's struggling with the subject of creation. May it be a blessing to their soul. Father, we are excited to see how you unfold our campaign here to make you known, both here, near, and everywhere. Lord, we give it all to you knowing that your will will ultimately be done. For these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.